That's enough of the housekeeping. We're going to get into a new series today. Uh, starting a new series is always exciting. I've wanted to preach on this topic for like three years, but I have always wimped out. I've always had it on the calendar to preach it, and then I'm like, no, I can't do it. You know why I've always wimped out about preaching about leadership? Because I always think people are going to think that sounds super boring. <laughs> when we think about seven talks on leadership, I'm afraid it conjures up images of those really dry corporate conferences your boss makes you go to sometimes, where you go and you just endure it, you sit through it, and you quietly envy the keynote speakers because they've got this great story. I was a nobody just like you, and I became, I became a somebody, and you can be like me as long as you change everything about who you are and what makes you you, and you're willing to sacrifice your social life and your family on the altar of success and money. Like You can be like me. And oftentimes these conferences, although they're helpful, leave us feeling inadequate, like leadership is some kind of unattainable thing that only a very slim minority of people are cut out for. And I remember going to a Los Angeles conference one time on leadership, and the keynote speaker said something like, uh, leaders are always uh, perfectionists. Leaders are perfectionists, and they always plan ahead. And I thought to myself, well... That's not me, because I was wearing two different colored socks that day. Like, I, I didn't even prepare for the trip. Like, I didn't even prepare as I packed. I didn't, I didn't plan ahead. It's just not who I am. But sometimes we get that message. One of the leadership books, a lot of them actually say that leaders are, are, are always um, really organized. And if you're not an organized person, you are sort of steeped in this thinking that you're not a leader. You know, the, the cliche, they always say that a cluttered desk is a cluttered mind, you know? Well, I don't know if there's anybody else like this. I can't work without a cluttered desk. Like, a clean desk makes me nervous. I'm like, who died? You know, it's like, uh, file cabinets make me nauseous. Like, that's just, but does that mean I'm not a leader? Or does that mean you're not a leader if you're not, if you don't fit that mold? I think this is a really important conversation for us to have because the definition the world and this culture often gives us of leadership is one that sets such a high bar that so few of us resonate with it. Of course, if leadership, if a leader means you're a certain title, a certain education, a certain age, a certain success level, um, then yeah, only a few of us are going to be leaders. But I reject that definition outright. And I rejected in favor of a much simpler one that I came across in a John Maxwell book a long time ago. John Maxwell said, look, leadership is influence. Leadership is influence, especially with people, where influence is the capacity to affect change in a person or in a group of people. So that's what leadership is. If, it got me thinking, if leadership is influence with people, and most of us have influence over a person or a group of people, even if it's just yourself, like you have influence over yourself, you have influence over usually someone else, then most of us are called to lead in some way. Most of us should be striving to become better leaders for the people that we're leading, right? And so leadership as a craft isn't something set aside for the few and the mighty and the successful. It's for all of us. And the reason this is so important is because nothing can affect change like a good leader can. 
And there's nothing sadder than when a person or a family or an organization or a business lacks good leadership because they just decay. They just, it's sad to watch and you know it, like you can perceive it. Within three minutes of walking into a a house, you know what kind of leadership that family has. Within a few minutes of walking into a restaurant, you know what kind of ownership the restaurant has, right? And you know that if it's a well-run establishment with great leadership, then the employees are motivated, the place is taken care of, it's clean and happy, because leaders leave fingerprints. And whether they're good or bad, you can see them if you're perceptive and paying attention. I'll give you an example. All right, this is an example from my own life. Um, several years ago, this was right after we moved to Texas, right after we moved to Houston, five years ago, uh, my family decided to take a little road trip. And we went on a Texas road trip. And like always, I wasn't um, um, prepared or I hadn't planned ahead. And so I didn't fill the gas tank before we left Houston. And I always wait until it, it goes ding. You know, it's like at the very end of it. And then I'm like, I wonder how much I can squeeze out of this. Like that's to give you a little profile uh, of my uh, leadership makeup. Like that's kind of how I play it. Um, And so we had to stop at the nearest possible gas station, which was, as best I could tell, a typical gas station. And by that, I mean it was dirty and dangerous and (laughs) poorly lit, right? Like that's what I think of when I think of your average gas station. I don't want to um, shame this company. It's a chain, and some of y'all are in oil and gas, and I definitely don't want to throw your company under the bus, so I'll just use an alias. Let's call it Shalero. It was a Shalero station. <laughs> All right? And the Shalero just looked like nobody had cleaned it inside or out in decades, and the lights were flickering and out, and there were like strange looking people everywhere and you felt like you were taking your life in your hands just by pulling into the parking lot. Half the pumps were out of service. They had the yellow bags on them and and then uh, I finally found a pump that worked and it asked me to select the fuel type that I wanted. You know what I'm talking about? The three buttons and I instinctively selected the button on the left because that's where regular unleaded is at most every gas station, except Shalero. At Shalero, they try to trick you, right? So on the left, it's not regular unleaded and then plus and then premium. It's premium and then regular and then plus. Who does that? Shysters. Shysters do that who try to squeeze every little dime out of suckers like me. It's my pet peeve. I've got a little problem with that. But I fell for it again and I pumped my gas and I was angry about it. And when I was done pumping the gas, the kids said, Daddy, I gotta go to the bathroom. And I looked around the building and the bathrooms were around the back of the building on the outside. And so I said, Gio, you take them. I'm just kidding. I didn't. I didn't, I didn't, I didn't. I promise. I'm a man. So so I went with the kids uh, to the bathroom. The door was locked. The sign over the door said what? Gotta get the, not, not out of order, the second worst thing. You gotta get the key from the cashier, which is always just humiliating. Like, you gotta go to this guy, and I got a potty, can I have a key? And there's, the, there's like a 20 pound block of wood connected to the key for some reason. And, and it's just this weird exchange. And so we go around to the building, back of the building, into the bathroom, and it's as disgusting as you can possibly imagine. Like, it was just a cesspool of germs. You could hear the creepy crawlies and it's like a dead body in the corner. And I'm just like, kids, straight ahead. Let's get it done in and out and don't touch anything. Right. And, um, and so somehow we made it out of that Shalero experience alive. Now, let me tell you about the second part of our trip on the way back. I planned ahead. 
like a leader does. I was prepared. And on the way back, when we were running on empty, I stopped at a tidy little establishment called Bucky's. <laughs> oh my goodness. This is my first Bucky's experience five years ago. Yeah, seriously. And so I had never seen a gas station that sits on 240 acres <laughs> of land. <laughs> and it was pristine. It had been around for years, but it was like it had just been built. Everything was clean inside and out. Every staff person was thrilled to be working at Bucky's. All the pumps worked. All the buttons were in proper order, just like God intended. Unleaded, plus, and premium. I pumped my gas, and the kids had to go potty again. We went inside the building because the bathrooms were inside the building. We walked right in. You didn't need a key. And in the men's room, it was immaculate. It was like 47 urinals. And they were all just spick and span, spotless, clean and shiny and new and everything smelled right. And it was just a, it's a privilege to use their facilities, <laughs> you know? And we went out into the store and my kids and I sampled like freshly made fudge and some smoked brisket and we bought chocolate covered everything and something called beaver nuggets. <laughs> you want to know a story? I had beaver nuggets for y'all. I've been throwing them out at every service, bags and bags, because we bought so many. I've just been throwing them at 8.45 and 9.45. Somebody stole my beaver nuggets before the 11 o'clock service. I know, at church, at church. So anybody that comes forward with information about Pastor Eric's missing beaver nuggets, I just, I don't know. Y'all just come and tell me. Anyway, I didn't know what beaver nuggets were before that, and I learned, boy, I learned. It was, it was a pleasure. It's not an exaggeration to tell you that our time at Bucky's was our family's highlight of our vacation. That's <laughs> all my kids talked about. And when it's time to go on another road trip, we're like, we're going to the beach, kids. And they're like, what about Bucky's? <laughs> like planning our trips around Bucky's. Now, what's the difference between Cholero and Bucky's? Is it beaver nuggets? If Cholero sold beaver nuggets, would they be Bucky's? Of course not. If Shalero cleaned their bathrooms, it'd be nice. Would, would they be Bucky's? No. The difference is leadership. It's vision. Listen, who knows when, several years ago, somebody said, hey, I think I'll open a gas station just like every other gas station. And by that, I mean it will be a cesspool of danger and disease and maybe death. And, and people will give me their money because they need gas and a toilet so bad, they will give me their money to put their own lives at risk. And then they created Shalero. Shalero was born, right? But in 1982, a young man named Beaver Applin had a vision. He had a vision of a gas station that families would actually like to go to. And yes, his name was Beaver. <laughs> and it's a vision, the likes of which the world had never seen. And it's a vision that, that we've all fallen in love with. But do you know who loved that vision in 1982? No one but Beaver. He was the only one. 
Can you imagine all the looks Beaver got when he sat in front of potential investors and shared his vision of a destination gas station? (laughs) And he told them, one day families all over the South are gonna plan their vacations around my gas stations. Can you imagine how crazy he sounded? That is a vision. Listen, to be a leader, you don't need a personality type. You don't need to be organized. You don't need to be a certain age or gender or success or office or position or title. All you need is two things. You need a vision and you need the will to see it through. A vision and the will to see it through. A vision is defined very simply as a mental picture of a preferred future. And all those words matter, right? So a mental picture means only you see it. It's in your head. And it's a picture of a preferred future. And seeing it through means communicating that vision to those who need to see this vision. Communicating it to those who the vision impacts. Right? Because it's their future, and together we can walk through it. Right? And there's something powerful that happens when a leader casts a vision. And the reason we're spending seven weeks on this is because I believe Jesus gave us a vision that the whole world needs to see, but they don't see it because not enough of us see ourselves as leaders to cast the vision and influence people. We think the leaders of the church are the pastors, the priests, the bishops, the elders. And you know what? Pastors and priests and bishops and elders are glad to let you think that because we like to feel important. But that's not the vision Jesus had. The vision Jesus had was for every disciple to be a leader. What did he say in his great commission, Matthew 28, 19? He said, go and make disciples. He didn't say come and be disciples. And so implied in following Jesus is influencing others to do the same. And so if you're following him, you're a leader. You're leading people to him, right? And that means casting a vision, uh, letting that person you're leading know who Jesus sees in them, who they really are, right? So that's all of us. So if it's all of us, how do we grow as leaders? That's what we're going to focus on for the next seven weeks. I want to do this over seven weeks by studying the story of this man from the Old Testament named Nehemiah. Nehemiah is a little-known character. If you're not familiar with Scripture, you may not be familiar with him at all. His story is in the Old Testament. It's his self-titled book, Nehemiah. He wrote it from the first-person point of view. Nehemiah was a Jewish man who lived in the Persian Empire in the 400s B.C., so the 5th century B.C. I want to give you all, especially you linear thinkers, a little bit of context here so you know where we are in history. In this point, and at this point in the Bible, from 600 to 586 B.C., The city of Jerusalem, the capital city of the Israelites, of the kingdom of Israel, was under siege. And so um, the Babylonians under King Nebuchadnezzar were laying siege to it for 14 plus years. They They were choking it out. They were surrounding the city and keeping all the resources out. And people were starving and dying of thirst and desperate. And finally, the Babylonians closed in and destroyed, decimated the city of Jerusalem. And in so doing, they just ruined the people like... All their pride was gone. They were humiliated. To add insult to injury, after the destruction of the city and the temple fell, the temple Solomon built, fell. 
Babylonians, uh, the Babylonians took off as exiles thousands of Israelites, including most of the civic leaders. And they forced them to live in Babylon. So that was uh, until 586. And that kind of um, life continued for another 50 years. In 539, the Babylonian kingdom fell at the hands of King Cyrus and the Persian kingdom. So the Babylonian kingdom was present-day Iraq, Persian kingdom, present-day Iran, right? And so these conflicts we see on the news a lot of times are ancient conflicts. So Persia took out Babylon in 539, and a few years later, according to the Bible, and this is at the end of 2 Chronicles in the beginning of a book called Ezra, according to the Bible, King Cyrus liberated all the exiles the Babylonians had conquered and taken away from their cities and told them to go back home and rebuild their cities and their temples and their culture. Now, this is a little interesting side note. Probably doesn't matter to some of you. I find it fascinating, and it's important to note when reading Nehemiah, that forever, secular scholars believed that this kind of detail in Nehemiah, in the Bible, like that Cyrus would liberate a bunch of captives from his kingdom and set them free to go home, that it was just fantasy, it was fiction, it was a way to tie the story together in the Old Testament. Like there was no precedent for a king of a growing empire to go to the peasant class, yeah, I'll just leave, it's fine, just go, we'll figure it out. But uh, then archaeology kind of came through for us again, and every time archaeology digs up something from the Bible times, it seems to prove the historical record that the Bible lays out. And Nehemiah is a historical book and not just a parable. And so what we find in this artifact that you see on the screen, which is called the Cyrus Cylinder, it is in the British Museum. This is an authentic artifact from King Cyrus himself. And in his own time, this has been proven authentic. In 536, he sets the captives of Babylon, free to go home. He says, go back, build your temples, fortify your cities, and rebuild your culture together. He really did this. And it's important to know when you read Nehemiah that you're reading history, and and you can rely on this as a historical record. I think that's pretty cool. We're dealing with a real guy who really lived and told a true, historically true story, all right? Um, So uh, 536 to 516, they rebuild the temple. The second temple is not like the first. In fact, the people who remembered the first one saw the second one and they wept. They were destroyed. They were like, that's not it. That wasn't, this is just a box. Solomon's temple was glorious. And now this is just a box and life stinks and we're mediocre. And they lived in that mediocrity for another 60 years. Have you ever seen people do that? Demoralized people just settle? It's sad. For 60 years, they just settled. They didn't rebuild the walls. They just lived in their ruins, right? Because they didn't believe there was a better future ahead for them. They had no leadership. Okay, so in um, 458, the new king of Persia, uh, Artaxerxes, sends Ezra back to reestablish the Torah and uh, the temple religion. And then he sends Nehemiah in 444. This is where we are, 444 BC, all right? So 100 years before the Greeks really take over Um, that part of the world, all right? So take your study guides or your Bibles, open to Nehemiah chapter one. We're gonna get to know Nehemiah a little bit today before um, before we wrap. We're gonna read verses one through four and verse 11. If you got your study guides, it's all in there and uh, it's obviously gonna be on the screen behind me. Nehemiah chapter four, I'm sorry, chapter one, verses one through four and verse 11. Y'all ready? With me? 
Yeah? Yeah. I need some beaver nuggets. If I had them, I'd give them to you. I don't know. All right. This is the words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah. In the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. And they said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. And when I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. And then he says, I was cupbearer to the king. That last line in verse 11 is pretty cool. He tells us his occupation and I think it's a pretty cool job. Cupbearer to the king. If you're in exile, a peasant class exile in a foreign land, like that's probably the job to have. All you do is carry a cup around and follow the king all day and you drink his wine when he's thirsty. And if you don't die, the king can drink it. Like it was to make sure the king wasn't being poisoned or sabotaged, right? That was pretty much it. It's better than working the fields, right? It's better than building stuff with your bare hands. Like Nehemiah had a pretty swanky, cush job. And what I want you to see is that Nehemiah was relatively comfortable. And that is supposed to be what life is all about. That's what we're working for. All of us, right? Like any, any one of the Jewish uh, exiles probably would have traded places with Nehemiah. Just like you trade places with somebody who's more comfortable than you. Because comfort is the goal. Deep in our, in our psyche. Like we think we're working hard because one day I'll be comfortable. One day I, it'll be easy. One day I can settle in. I don't have to grind like I'm grinding now. When I'm comfortable, I'll arrive. Like I'll be there. That's what I'm aiming for. And the saddest thing on earth is when somebody works for comfort their whole lives and they attain it and they're depressed because it's not what they thought it was. They get comfort and then they're just bored. They're just despondent. What do I do now? I'm comfortable, but I'm numb. I don't feel anything because you were not created for comfort, period. You were created for something better. And it starts with what one pastor called holy discontent. And that's the feeling Nehemiah had when he heard about Jerusalem. The feeling of holy discontent. He could not abide the thought of Jerusalem still, after all these years, sitting in ruins. What have they been doing this whole time? Satisfied of mediocrity and subpar living, like they don't have any vision. And Nehemiah could not do nothing. And I want you to be aware of that feeling of holy discontent, right? The feeling that you get when you know something is not the way it should be or it could be. And God gives you that feeling because what come next, what comes next is a vision. How to get from here to there. And I'm not talking about like how to fix the roads or whatever in Houston or like stuff that makes you mad in the day to day. I'm talking about something that God shows you about someone or something you care about. Nehemiah cared deeply about Jerusalem and even though he had a comfortable job, he could not just stick with it. And so he knew he was supposed to do something else. And that's what happens next in the story. This is chapter 2, verses 1 through 8. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was brought to him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. I had not been sad in his presence before. You were always supposed to be cheerful in the presence of the king. And so the king asked, why does your face look so sad when you're not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. I was very much afraid. 
But I said to the king, may the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? And the king said to me, what is it that you want? And then I prayed to the God of heaven and I answered the king, if it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my ancestors are buried so that I can go and rebuild it. Then the king, with the queen sitting beside him, asked, How long will your journey take, and when will you get back? It pleased the king to send me, so I set a time. He did not delay. He set a time right then. I also said to him, If it pleases the king, may I have letters to the governors of Trans-Euphrates so that they will provide me safe conduct until I arrive in Judah? And may I have a letter to Asaph, keeper of the royal park, so that he will give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel by the temple and for the city wall and for the residence that I will occupy? And because the gracious hand of my God was upon me, the king granted my requests. Listen. (laughs) Uh, this was the crossroads moment for Nehemiah where he had to choose between comfort and responding, answering this discontent in his heart. You can't really do both. If you choose comfort, the discontent remains or you just drink it away. If you choose discontentment, you let go of comfort, but you pursue a purpose. And in this moment, the vision God placed on Nehemiah's heart was so clear that he couldn't resist it anymore. And it's so clear, you can tell Nehemiah's thought about it because when the king's like, what are you gonna need? He says right away, I'll tell you what I need. I need letters for safe passage so that other kings don't think I'm trespassing and I need some lumber. I don't know what else you need to build stuff because I'm not a builder, I'm just a cupbearer, but I know I'm gonna need some lumber. And he asked for it in the moment. And it's almost impossible to say no to somebody who's passionate about their vision. And so the king says, yes, and he's glad to say Yes, but the question just stuck in my mind this week. What gave Nehemiah the idea that he's the guy? He was not an architect. He was not a builder. There was other builders and architects in Israel that could have done this. What did Nehemiah, the cupbearer in Susa, have that a thousand other Jewish men didn't? He had the vision of a city restored. He had a vision of a brighter future for Jerusalem, a vision that no one else at the time had. And then he sacrificed his comfort to chase the vision. I want you to think with me about your life. Think with me about every person God has put in your path who has changed your life. And not just in a nice little way, but in one of those life-altering seasons where the trajectory of your life was changed. I can almost promise or guarantee you that every person who impacted your life in a trajectory-altering way had a vision for you and of you that you couldn't even see yourself. They saw a version of you that you were unable to see in the present moment. And they cast that vision for you and opened your eyes to the possibilities. They didn't have to do it. And certainly it was a risk for them to invest in you in that way because you could have continued in your mediocrity. You could have continued to just wallow in your you know, self-loathing or whatever, and you could have proven them wrong. It's a stupid vision. You're wrong about me. This is who I am. And they're up there. No, this is who you are. And you prove them wrong again and again. Clearly it's a risk. 
to cast a vision. Think about every person who's cast a vision of a preferred future for you. I thought about mine this week. Several images came to mind. I thought about Nettie Carr. And Nettie Carr was in her 80s. And I used to go to her house after school when I was 10 years old. And we'd watch the people's court together, Judge Wapner. And we would eat junk food together. And, and I was going through a hard time in my life. I didn't really believe in myself at all. My grades were falling. I was getting in all kinds of trouble. And Nettie Carr used to say, I just, I just see a light shining in you, Eric Ray. And I see a pastor when I look at you. No one had ever said that to me before. And I was like, uh, okay, where's, where's the root beer? Can I have some root beer? Like, I was just changing the subject, you know, like, this is weird. She's out of her mind. But it stuck with me, the vision she cast for me. I thought about later in my life when I had that little run-in with the law that I talked about a couple of Easter's ago when I ended up in jail when I was 18. And yeah, kids, Pastor Eric was in jail, whatever, let it go. But like, I was in jail when I was an eight, 18 years old. My dad came to get me out of jail the next morning and I was in the, the, the jail jumper that they gave me and we had to talk through the glass on the phone and all this stuff. And what do you think the first thing is that my dad said to me was, when we picked up the phone, I, I thought it would be, what are you thinking? How dare you? Your mother and I try to give you everything. All this, like, that's how I pictured it. You know what he said? I'll never forget it. He said, Eric, you're not a criminal. <laughs> Which is, it's funny now, but you know what? In the moment, that's exactly what I needed to hear. But do you, do you know what I felt like in that jumpsuit on that phone that day? A criminal, right? But he was casting a vision for me, a better future <laughs> that I would not have seen on my own. And obviously all the ways Giovanna has led me in that way, she has as I've oftentimes made the same mistakes and wallowed in my self-grief and all this stuff. And like I have needed a vision and she has cast one for me. That's not who you are, Eric. This is who you are. This is who you are. This is who you are. Even if I disappoint her, this is who you really are. And I think about the way that Jesus led his people. Like he had a bunch of peasants following him around, peasants and prostitutes, nobody ever said anything good about the people who followed Jesus around. And Jesus looked him in the eye and said, you are the light of the world, the salt of the earth, a city on a hill. And those peasants and prostitutes are like, me? And he's like, yeah, you. And it took him a while to believe it. But once the church was born, they started believing it. They started answering that call to a better future. Who has led you in that way? Who has influenced you? I hope that you take time to remember and give thanks for them, but also to learn from them. Because just as you have been led, you are called to lead someone else. And there is someone in your life right now, someone you work with or go to school with or live with, someone you're married to, perhaps, someone you go to church with who has no idea who they really are. They have not been led to see a better picture of their preferred future. They think they are just who they are today. They have no idea the potential God sees in them. And who is going to tell them about it? Their, their, their family that talks to them twice a year, like their boss, like the people they work with. Who is going to project this picture of a preferred future if not you? 
As you follow Jesus' vision for your life, like you can project his vision for theirs and influence them in some positive, life-altering way. If not you, then who? And if not now, then when? Someone is waiting for you, starving for a vision, for a better life, a better version of them. I pray that you'll be the one to tell them that's not who you really are. I love you as you are, but that's not who you really are. I see something better. And let's go there together. It's a risk. It takes energy. It takes leaving your life of comfort or your pursuit of comfort behind. And your friend or spouse or child or parent could prove you wrong and they could choose to stay where they are. It's always a risk. But the risk of leadership, godly, vision-oriented leadership, it's always worth it. Would you pray with me? Jesus, give us courage, courage, Lord, to live faithful lives and to lead, even as we follow you, to lead by having influence in the lives of others, casting a vision that others can see and respond to and pursue. Lord, help us not to just be nonchalant and passive. Help us not just to seek empty comfort. Lord, help us to step up and live with passion, the passion of Nehemiah. Live with audacity, the audacity that we need to see the vision you've set before us. I pray today, Lord, for those who are being called out to lead and for those they're called to lead, that we would not shy away from this calling. We pray in Jesus' name.